0: hold these truths to be
1: self-evident, that all men are
2: created equal, and they are endowed by their creator. All all welcome back to the nice next episode of BC Law, Just Law Podcast. I'm Tom Blakely. I'm here with Jim Fiore. Uh, today, we're going to be sitting down with former Alabama Senator Doug Jones. Uh, he's an American attorney, lobbyist, and politician who serves the United States Senator from Alabama from 2018 to 2021. Uh, as a Democrat, he was the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama from 1997 to 2001. Uh, Here at BC Law, he is teaching a seminar this semester the United States Senate today, How It Works and Why It Doesn't, which is a real-time study of the day-to-day workings of the United States Senate. Uh, Before we get started, before Senator Jones joins us, we just want to emphasize a couple things. Number one, uh, as you might know and as we're going to get into, he's currently the uh, Sherpa for the Supreme Court nomination uh, process for for President Biden that's uh, underway uh, presently. And so obviously because of that, uh, we anticipate there's probably going to be a couple – maybe more than a couple, uh, points that we might not be able to fully explore, at least at this time, just given uh, confidentiality agreements and other things that uh, could be in place from uh, from the political angle. Uh, number One other thing we want to emphasize, Senator Jones is uh, speaking for himself and uh, his views do not represent the views of the administration uh, or his employer. So with the legalese out of the way, being a couple of litigious law students that have to make sure we have all of our bases covered and all of our boxes checked, uh, we'd like to welcome in Senator Jones. We'll go ahead and get started uh, with this interview that we're really excited about. All right, welcome back to the next episode of the BC Law Just Law Podcast. I'm Tom Blakely. I'm here with Jim Fiore and of course former Alabama Senator Doug Jones, who's kind enough to take some time on his pretty busy schedule to join us here today. Thank you, Senator, for for being with us uh all right so we know you're a busy guy so we're, we're gonna we're gonna stick to our script here just have some questions <laughs> for you about what you're up to these days your role here uh at bc law and uh and what's going on in the country and uh and in the world uh well you know we kind of went back and forth about whether or not we should uh have an introduction for you you don't really need an introduction but w- w- what do you want folks to know you know law school students uh, anybody out there who's listening uh you know obviously you're, you're 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 a well-known guy but things people might not know about you yeah, w- w- what do you want people to know
0: you know i, I- I think that just that for 40 years, I was a lawyer, uh, a trial lawyer. I spent a lot of time in a lot of courtrooms around the country, uh, particularly in Alabama, obviously. Um, But I enjoyed uh, the practice of law. Mm -hmm. I I really got a kick out of it. It was time to move on to something. And I was very uh, fortunate to get elected to the United States Senate. But I think some of the individual cases that I may have done have kind of overshadowed the fact that I was just a, a practicing lawyer, you yeah. know,
1: every day grinding it out. And uh, it, it, it's a it's a rewarding profession.
2: Mm-hmm. Very good.
1: And of course, this semester, you are the Jerome Lyle Rappaport Distinguished Visiting Professor, and we're very happy to have you. How did that opportunity come about? Uh, with a phone call.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm just at home because uh, I, I was splitting time between a law firm in D.C., uh, as well as the Center for American Progress. And, but we were still a lot virtual um, throughout the fall and, and really into this year. And I'm just at home working uh, in my little study and, and uh, get an email uh, from uh, Lissy over at the center yep. and uh, set this all out, and it was really a fascinating opportunity. So we talked, and, and I was able to figure out a way to do this. And uh, I'm just honored to, to be here and to have been considered but it literally just came out of the blue. It was not anywhere on my radar, nothing that I had applied for. Um, and that makes it special, you know, very yeah. special for me. Happy yeah. to have you.
2: Yeah. And, and so, what's your? Uh, well, first of all, uh, being here in Boston, have you been, to, been in Boston before? Been involved in things here? Or is were you coming here for the first time? Like, what's your what's your schedule like? Like, how do, how does it go <laughs> getting from all the way from Alabama to to Newton, Massachusetts?
0: Well, the schedule's gotten kind of crazy yeah. since I got up here. Um, no, I'd been in Boston a number of times at, for conferences. Um, you know, my son, uh, my youngest son, uh, looked at. Uh, at Boston as well as B.C. as a potential undergraduate. So we came up and visited. But, I mean, I've loved the city. I love mm. the history of the city. Uh, I love the food in the city, it you know, uh, the sports, you name it. Been wow. to a couple of Red Sox games. Nice. Um, so, yeah, I've, I, I love Boston. The schedule for me right now is pretty nuts, having this kind of taken this gig with yeah. the White House for a little bit. So I'm right now it's really hectic. I'm in on Sundays. Uh, so you're up here through, on Sunday. I come in on okay. Sundays. I've got a full day Monday, including the class, and then right now I'm flying out. Until we get this Supreme Court nominee confirmed, that's probably going to be my schedule.
2: Sure, uh, it sounds like a pretty hectic, uh, hectic week. Uh, before talking about the Supreme Court, I want to ask you about the class. I'm in the class. Great class. You know, we've, uh, <laughs> we're we're a few weeks in now. Um, so how, how do you develop the idea for the class? You know, when you you found out, uh, you know, BC wanted you to. To come up here and, uh, and and be involved, like how did you how did you come up with this idea for the course and how to structure it and how to teach and did did you ever think you'd be teaching one day? Like how how did this come to you?
0: Well, you know, I taught classes before yeah. at various stages in my career, and it's a real pain. I mean, it is you know, there's a lot of work that goes in, especially a law class. And I wasn't sure from a, a the, the law school standpoint what would really be a good class. And I also knew that given the amount of time that I was engaged in with a law firm, with, a, uh, with CAP, with others, that my, my time is going to be re- pretty limited in, as to what I can do. Coming up here was not going to be the issue because, yeah. again, so much virtual, but the time and preparation. And all And so I called um, my former legislative director, who is now the chief of staff for another U.S. senator, and I talked to him a little bit about it. And he's actually the one that gave me the idea. of having the class act as a Senate staff and following the Senate real time, doing the things, uh, uh, talking about the rules, talking about the issues of the day, seeing what uh, a Senate office really looks like, which was great for me because I let all of you guys do all the work and prepare. And I don't have to do much that I don't normally do anyway. I mean, I'm always reading about what's going on in the federal government and in the Senate and mm-hmm. the issues of the day anyway. So it worked out really well, and I hope everybody's having some fun.
2: No, it's a very fun course. So essentially we're, we're sort of learning how the Senate works by pretending we're working in the Senate. Right. It's been very hands-on, and you know it's experiential, and I think everybody enjoys it a lot. Um, so I want to also talk about something that you're very much in the news about. As you're aware, of the, um, what's going on with the Supreme Court? You're the Sherpa uh, for this process. Just what should we know about that? Like, how did you you, 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 know, you get the call that this is going to be happening? Like, you're already a pretty busy guy. Um, what's your role? What do you do? How, what should folks know about, uh, about what a Sherpa does every day?
0: Well, I am on leave of absence okay. from uh, my law firm and CAP. They let me continue to uh, be here at B.C., um, but really it's, it's, is what the name implies. It's trying to help once the nominee is named, guide that nominee through the confirmation process, uh, visiting with the United States senators, uh, that we can schedule a visit with, uh, helping prepare for confirmation hearings, trying to talk to senators following all that to see if there, we can get votes for the nominee. So it's really just a guide. The good thing is I don't have like a 300 pound backpack that I've mm-hmm. got to do like most of the real Sherpas yeah. uh, in the world. But that's kind of it. I mean, that's, that's, that's the real basics.
1: Um, and, and frankly, about a, all I can talk about right now. <laughs> I understand. And was that, was that similar to the class where there was no application process for that? You just got a call for that. You know, uh, it was interesting. I, I really m- saw my name
0: first mentioned uh, in an email from uh, the media reports mm-hmm. And from that point on, things started just happening pretty yeah.
1: quickly. So, you read it before you heard it? Yeah, about I got it. an email from a,
0: yeah. a reporter. Yeah. And um, I, I reached out to, you know, at yeah. that point to the White House, and things really did start happening quickly. Interesting.
2: Uh, why do you think you were chosen for this role?
0: I, you know, you're going to have to ask uh, President Biden about okay. that. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I just left the Senate a year ago. It is the, the Senate confirmation process. Is, gotten to be rough and tumble. Okay. Um, and I've known the president for a long time. I mean, yeah. I've known, literally known him since I was in law school some 40 years ago. So oh, wow. uh, I'll let him answer those questions. How did you know him back then? He came and visited. He came uh, uh, to the law school when I was a second-year law student. He oh. came to, to Cumberland and uh, spoke, and I was incredibly impressed. I mean, I really believed at that, that time he was just about to complete his first term in the Senate. And um, he was still, he was 36, 37 years old. And I thought, this, this, is, this guy's got what it takes. And I thought, I've, th- ever since that day, Always believed he would make a great president.
2: Great. Um, and so, to the extent you can talk about is—is so is your role, do you, are you involved in choosing nominees, or is it just once a nominee is chosen, helping that person? We're going to
0: have to come back on all that. Yeah. I, okay. They they really locked me down a little bit yeah. uh, on things, and, I, and appropriately so. Yeah. Uh, this is a very intense process mm-hmm. for the selection. It's going to be an intense process to go through confirmation. So, uh, you know, maybe we can do this later in the semester if we gotcha. can get through it, and I can have a little bit more freedom to talk right now yeah it, it's pretty uh, pretty quiet
2: gotcha um, so moving into the state of politics so you've made a few addresses you've spoke to classes you've um, including the, the class uh, you're just speaking to now um, about the state of democracy well that was the subject of your speech um, so you're a democratic center from one of the most conservative states um, in America do you think that you're party is doing enough to appeal to voters in places like Alabama or, you know, one of the conversations after the last few elections is the idea of flyover states and folks feeling like they're left behind and, you know, people retreating to their corners. Uh, How do you feel about that?
0: No, I, I, you know, look, I've said for years that I thought that Democrats were leaving uh, people. They left the South Mm -hmm. as a whole back 20 years ago and that we need to be going where people are Mm-hmm. And addressing a lot of those issues. And I think uh, and, and conversely, I think uh, Republicans are doing the same thing with some of the urban areas and different things. You know, gerrymandering is a huge problem in this country mm-hmm. where people only talk to the uh, small part of their base, whether it's Democrat or Republican. And I'd love to be able to see some non nonpartisan gerryma- uh, nonpartisan drawing of district lines where people can really compete for votes. Uh, and not have to, you know, have their voters chosen for them. And I think that would help us a lot. But, you know, yeah, I I think Democrats, you know, need to to reach out. Demographics are changing throughout the South and throughout the the country. And I think the party that recognizes that and sees that will have the best success because people across the country are really in their core are the same. Right now, they're just kind of um, I think the social media and others just tend to really stoke divisions when there doesn't need to be.
2: I want to ask you about that last point. Uh, and Jill, I uh, have a question. Um, and I know you were just mentioning that in the snippet of the class. I was just uh, standing in this, the, the role of social media in our politics today. I know you've, you've got some thoughts on that. A lot of folks do. Um, about the effect that has just from a technical standpoint and you know, from a practical standpoint, you know, what it's what it's doing to folks, what it's doing to folks in the media who report on these things and people listen to, you know, being on the inside, having been a senator, having been a politician and, you know, witnessing politics from the other side of of the platforms and from, uh, you know, a lot of publications and talking head TV channels and all the f- things that folks spend their time listening to. What is it like from the inside? What are your thoughts on social media and, and the role that that plays? And you just just where do we stand in terms of media today?
0: Well, i you know, look. I think social media does and will, from this point on, play a significant role uh, in our politics and the way we interact with each other. There's no question about that. Unfortunately, I think that government sometimes and and people haven't quite caught up to all of this. And by that, I mean it's a new and it's a it's still a, a, a relatively young platform. Mm-hmm. And you know, and it and it's a it can be even though it's public it's private in the sense that somebody is sitting in their den or their home or their kitchen or their office on a phone or a computer and it's just them and they can respond. And, and what I've seen is that they've responded in ways that they would never, if we were sitting down here Mm -hmm. like this. Um, And unfortunately though, those kind of responses are now going um, mainstream in the sense that people do respond to that when they, when they see each other. So I, Hopefully, and, and what I, I think the biggest problem that I see, too, people don't fully appreciate that not everything they see on that phone is true. Right. It, it, and in, it, we, the, the term fake news has been overused these days, but there is a lot of just total misinformation uh, on social media platforms where people have their own ideas and they will basically manipulate facts or just make up facts in order to get that and to get their point across. And there is a lot of misinformation that is being generated from outside this country, mm-hmm. from bad actors who want to stoke the divisions in this country, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's Russia, China, Iran, you name it. Um, and, and I think the American people, and as well as people around the world, have still a ways to go before they're being able to discern what's really true and what's not and what's really being used to to inflame them as opposed to engage them.
2: Just one quick follow up question on that. Both former President Trump and President Biden and, you know, a lot of members of Congress have expressed support for repealing or, you know, otherwise affecting Section 230 and the liability shield that tech companies have given, uh, you know, January 6th. And just sort of what you were talking about, the way foreign actors and even people domestically are able to manipulate social media to, you know, stoke some of those divisions. What do you you think, having been in government understanding um, the levers of government, how do you think government should respond to you know, big tech and social media at a time where it seems like a lot of people in Washington are trying to figure out that question?
0: Well, just, just like the American people are still trying to get used to these platforms, big tech has grown faster than these platforms is themselves. I mean, and I, I think that the Congress and everybody is trying to figure out that right now. Um, we, we, and I am a big proponent of the First Amendment. Um, and we have that, and we've got to uh, not only recognize it, but we've got to honor that First Amendment and the privileges of freedom of speech that we have in this country. At the same time, given the number of platforms, given the number of, of bad actors that are out there, given the amount of total misinformation, we've got to figure out a way to work with big tech. There, I, I believe, and I don't know this firsthand since I'm not in the Congress, but ultimately there will be some sense of some regulation on that because – Um, unless they do it themselves and that's the ideal thing where where these companies can police themselves a little bit to make sure that the information out there is not provided you know for instance right now if somebody is threatening violence whether it's on a social media platform or whatever there can be repercussions for that and I think we've got to kind of look at the broader aspect and where this is going and I don't I think time is of the essence um to and, and i finally i think there's an education component to this as well where we have to educate people and we have to do it in a nonpartisan way the left doesn't need to be preaching about the you know how the right is doing xyz and the right doesn't need to be preaching about the left they both need to be talking to each other about the problems that they see and the false information and misinformation out there.
1: Yeah, leading off of that, I want to go back to the issue of, of partisanship because a lot of politicians do talk about you know, reaching over the aisle. But I feel like when, when push comes to shove, a lot of them kind of just start blaming the other side. But you've been spoken so highly of as a senator who, who actually got it done. So I just wanted to see if you could talk about some of the strategies and what you think should be implemented to to kind of bridge this like divisive time in the country. It,
0: it takes time. It yeah. takes some uh, patience. It takes being able to go where other people are. And I, I like the quote, and y'all if people have heard me all the time quoting Atticus Finch and mm-hmm. To Kill a Mockingbird saying that you need to walk around in another man's skin and to see things from their point of view. And we don't do enough of that. I think the right and the left sometimes think it's my way or the highway. Uh, and they're very uh, pure. And that's just not the way democracy is. Democracy is not that pure. Uh, people can um, compromise the way you can get things done without compromising principles. And I think that that's the key. Sometimes it's a fine line, but I think people can do that. It just takes time. It takes some patience um, and trying to, to to talk to people. You know, most things in this country are bipartisan goals. Health care. Everybody wants folks to have good health care. Everybody wants everybody to have a good education and the opportunities for a good job and a good paying job. How you get there is what, breaks republicans and democrats off from each other but if you can keep your eye on the prize then i think we can we can get there we've just got to maintain keeping that eye on the prize and and trying to find that common ground and and go again without compromising principle i don't think that that's inconsistent
2: going off of that question a lot of people have observed that there's a you know pretty significant difference between what we feel about other people and other people's politics and, you know, just the state of uh, politics generally based upon what you see in the media versus when you're actually sitting down like we are and talking to somebody on the street. You know, I think a lot of Americans believe that, you know, uh, somewhat tribalistic idea of, you know, uh, you know of our opponents and our you know, political opponents and uh, that people are just much more extreme than they actually are when you sit down and talk to somebody. Um, and, you, and, you, and you meet people in real life versus just you know, listening to people the, on the media or in the media or rather on social media, et cetera, um, what do you think drives that? Why do you think there's such a difference between the way the media talks about our politics versus when you actually sit down with somebody and talk to them in real life like, like we're doing right now?
0: I, I, that's a really tough question to parse out all of the, the, of the reasons. Mm-hmm. I think that there, and I've said this many times, I think there are provocateurs that are making a lot of money stoking those fears. Mm -hmm. And that's what you, that's what people, people tend to stay in their silos more than, than not. They, whether it's a, whether it's the right or the left, they tend to stay in silos and you people kind of, you, you get fed what you kind of tend to believe anyway, and you don't get outside of that silo. I, I think in, in Washington, I, you know Lamar Alexander from Tennessee, Republican from Tennessee, who retired last year, uh, was a good friend, and we talked about this a, a lot too. That that my experience was that Washington D.C. at the end of the day was probably the most bipartisan city in America, mm-hmm. because senators and their staffs did talk to each other. We did co-sponsor bills together. We did go to, to different things, the prayer breakfast and other things together. And we there were these discussions, as I said a minute ago, about we have this goal. How do we get there? You don't see it on C-SPAN, though. You right. don't see it in dueling press conferences. So America doesn't see a lot of that. And they just see the polarization and they see the demonization of the other side. We are moving to where the other side, this is a good versus evil. And if you're a, too many Democrats see Republicans as evil and too many Republicans see Democrats as evil. And that's just not the case, mm-hmm. except on maybe the extremes of, of both sides. So we really just need to be able to, to put that back. But also, you know, one of the things I found in my three years in the Senate, so many people, whether it's Alabama or elsewhere, said, we really just want you all to work together. Mm-hmm. But yet. I don't think that we, being the public servants, educate the people enough about we are trying to work together. And so they don't vote that way always. They vote for somebody who's just going to fight. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I never like to use that term fight yeah. anymore.
2: Right. Um, I got another question then uh, Jim can go. Uh, so just going off of that point, you know, if you observe you know, politics for the last few years here, it certainly seems like there's a, you know, Band of you know sort of a handful of very very divisive issues you know I think we're all sort of familiar with what a lot of them are and then there's a lot of you know other issues you know things like infrastructure and things like the economy that don't really engender the same level of partisan you know sort of tribal uh, you know cacophony if you will from folks. Do you think that it's possible and you know you're inside Washington I have a sense of this you know the perception is that well, Washington can't get anything done you know we're so divided about um, this and that but it seems like when you really sit down and look at it there's you know a handful of topics that really get Folks really charged up, and then a lot of other rather pedestrian issues. That's not really the case. I haven't been in Washington, I haven't been in the Senate, um, particularly during the you know the the time that you were there. What is the reality of that? Are you able to work with folks on things that you know are largely bipartisan, while sort of putting on the shelf maybe some things that you know really get people. Uh, into their corners, or do, do you see those things creeping into just every area of policy and work that you do?
0: Well, it's creeping more and more, but I do think that there are a lot of areas. Um, you know, when I was in my three years, we, I think it was like 26 bills,
2: mm-hmm.
0: bipartisan bills. It th- th- Those involved everything from creating a rural health care liaison. So uh, in, in the Department of uh, Agriculture, so that all rural health care Information in the federal government was going to be coordinated through a single office, as opposed to a whole conglomerate the of offices. Just yeah. making it more efficient. That was an easy uh, that was an easy bridge to cross uh, with Republicans, and it was an easy bridge to get into uh, the farm bill. We had a money laundering bill. It took us three years to get done. But working with Senator Cotton uh, and Senator Rounds and Senator Warner, two Republicans, two Democrats, we updated that. So there there are those pockets. Now, at the end of the day, a lot of those things don't end up as standalone bills that get voted on. What they end up doing is they get thrown into an omnibus appropriations package or the national defense authorization bill. what we what's called a must pass bill Mm -hmm. and they get pulled in there I'd like to see more standalone bills that have the ability for amendments on the floor and debate on the floor but there is that opportunity for that again it goes back to what I said earlier that there are so many things that are bipartisan goals Mm -hmm. and if you can find that bipartisan goal you can find a way to get there it's those cultural issues that really it makes it very very difficult
1: Yeah. And speaking of those standalone bills, you know, one of the things that uh, prevents those is the filibuster. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, would you want to repeal the filibuster? Do you think, you know, is there a way to revise it and you can, you know, kind of kind of make it work better to get that bipartisanship?
0: Yeah, I think right now um, I may have to defer that question a little bit with my role that is going to be there in the Senate for a little bit. I have advocated publicly that there needs to be rule changes Mm -hmm. uh, for the filibuster. Uh, that it, you shouldn't require 60 votes just to get something on the floor to debate and mm-hmm. some things like that. But th- the specifics of that we might want to hold. We might can do this again yeah, a little bit enough. later. Um, you know, it, I hate to do that on a couple of occasions, guys, mm-hmm. but, yeah. you know, right now, I've, I, this is going to be a pretty sensitive role dealing with both Republicans. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're no one is taking any vote for granted for or against whoever the nominee is going to be. And yeah, I want to sure, yeah. Yeah. I I make sure yeah. that uh, from my standpoint, that uh, folks know that when I walk in their offices, that I'm there uh, to try to talk to them and yeah. help them make a decision. Yeah.
2: And yeah, I understand where you come from. Um, also want to ask, you know, looking to the future and, you know, we're at a law school, you're, you know, uh, here with us at BC law, you know, a lot of folks who go to law school ultimately become, uh, you know, public officials and uh, politicians and senators and folks like yourself. What do you think people in this position at this age that you know, might go on to fill out some of those roles? What tools, skills, et cetera? What do you need in today's government in today's world to, to be successful in those roles?
0: I think you need a, uh, I think you need to listen. Oh. I think you need to listen and, and not only uh, and couple that with an understanding, to try to understand when somebody is sitting across from you with a different perspective, not just listen to what they say, but and, and to to counter it like you would in a in a in a trial courtroom, mm-hmm. but listen to what they're saying and try to understand it so that you can then figure out where where that common ground might be, where you can work together on any number of issues. I th- I even think in in some of the cultural issues there is areas that people can work together on if they could put aside the politics of it and not be afraid that if they let their guard down, somebody's going to take an advantage of them. Um, And so I think the listening and understanding skills is probably the best. The other thing I would say is for folks that are interested in public service or a political career, remember that it is public service, and you need to go into it as a public servant. Not because your ego says, I want to be a senator or mm-hmm. I want to be a governor or I want to be the president. It is a service. It is for the public. You are working for people. And it, you've got to go in that in the, with the right attitude. And there's so many people out there today, I think, that are absolutely doing that. Mm-hmm. But I also see a lot of folks that get co-opted once they get there. Mm-hmm. And then it's all about their reelect or whatever. Public service is just that. It is public service. And I think too many people forget that and get carried away with their political powers.
2: Do you think that that's increasing? Is that something that you think the younger generation, maybe staffers, people that worked under you, just you know, working with um, younger people who are you know, coming up uh, in Washington, do you think that that issue is something that's growing? Is it a cultural dynamic? What do you think is leading to that?
0: To, to the I think that younger folks are probably more public service oriented than others. The question mm-hmm. is, once they get into that role, do they then get invested to the point that the service part of that becomes more personal? Mm-hmm. And that's the key. It's, it's being able to, once you get into that role, to always understand that your role is not for you. It's for the people that put you there. Okay. And so I... I, I'm, I'm really hopeful about the younger generation. I see this in so, so many areas where people are doing this these, these days. And, and, you, and it starts with a particular issue. It could be climate. It could be education. It could be health care and trying to get out from a pandemic or mental health. And it starts with an issue, and it broadens from there.
2: Okay. Um, and do you see this as, you know, people talk about like the revolving door in Washington? Do you think that that contributes to this? Or is it, is it more economic? Is it cultural? Like what, what is causing folks to maybe not always, uh, you know, to, to sometimes lose sight of, of, of public service and the fact it's not about, you know, vanity or, or some other things, you know, over the last few years, like you look at the, the Trump administration, I guess there's a lot to, to point to there. But this uh, sort of moment in time where, where politics and uh, imaging and all of it is just everywhere.
0: I think it's a combination of the way campaigns are run these days, mm-hmm. the amount of money that it right. takes to run a campaign, the the fact that you've got independent expenditures where people can put all kinds of what they call dark money into certain yeah. things. And, and you've got to be able to fend off for yourself, for the uh, attacks, whether they're correct or not. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it all is a, a combination of things where people really have it really takes a lot of discipline mm-hmm. to, to not succumb to the idea that I've got to do whatever it takes to keep my job yeah. and to understand that there are times when you've got to step out and do things because it's the right thing to do based on the on facts that you know are facts. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it takes a lot and not everybody can do it, I don't think, uh, right now, but I think, you know, hopefully we'll get to a point and, and the public can help with that. The public can demand that mm-hmm. and not if somebody, you know, let let's, let me just give an example. You know, if, if, if a Senator from a conservative state works as a, a lot, but ultimately votes to impeach a president, mm-hmm. Sometimes that, that, not ought, that one issue ought not be the issue that somebody decides to vote against that person for. Mm-hmm. Um, and they need to look at the history and the totality of what that person may have done for the state of Alabama and the areas that they agree on. Mm-hmm. It's difficult for voters to put that aside because they get invested in people as well. Mm-hmm. But I think the education part of that uh, could help.
2: Do you think voters in your state were able to do that?
0: Uh, not, not enough. Yeah. I mean, I think there were some yeah. for sure. Um, but, I, you know, Alabama is a pretty partisan state right now. Mm. And I, I think it, it probably didn't matter. Yeah. Um, you know, I probably could voted a, a different way. But those were the votes that got used most yeah. uh, against me. Yeah. Um, and they ignored the other great things that I think that we did for the state. Jim, do you have anything
2: else. Good. Okay, just one final question, Senator. I appreciate you being with us here today. If you could click your heels together and change one thing about the Senate, whether it's procedural, whether it's some matter of politics, money in politics—I know we talked about that—you know, sort of the role that that can play—what would it be? What would you change? I know we're exploring some of these things in our class right now, but what would you change if if you had the had the touch?
0: I, I'd really want the Senate to go back to what is known as regular order, mm. and that would be more uh, rules that require a, a kind of a talking filibuster. And that the that the uh, that the filibuster is is not just a perfunctory sixty vote for everything, mm-hmm. but to make it there to give the minority uh, uh, points of view and influence. But if you get to regular order, you get more to debate,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: you get more. You have more amendments on the floor, and you can argue those and debate those issues. I think trying to change the rules a little bit to get the Senate back to that deliberative body, the greatest deliberative body in the world that it was supposed to be, mm-hmm. I think would be the way to do that. Now, that's a very generic answer. And the devil's in the details on how to do that. And it's, it's difficult to do. But that's kind of what I would like to see. And I'd like to see the Senate. Um, I, I wish people could see a little bit more of the interplay and the collegiality among senators. Uh when the cameras are not on mm. uh, a little bit, that, that that might could help, too, as opposed to just on the Senate floor.
2: Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, Senator Jones, we appreciate you being here with us today. Thank hey, you for joining my us. My pleasure, guys.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Enjoyed it.